millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Barbican Center set for major renewal as Center for Music scrapped. A row over poor cause in Walthamstow, the Church of England promises generous use of its land for new homes, and Boris Johnson's vision for a huge roundabout under the Isle of Man. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My special guest this week is Lucy Watson, House and Home Commissioning Editor at FT Weekend. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This was a really big story. It went out as a breaking news alert by the Architects Journal. That's how big it is. It's all to do with the Centre for Music, a £288 million mega concert hall designed by Dilla, Scafidio and Renfro of New York. And it's been scrapped. In scrapping the project, the City of London Corporation has said that it will instead focus on a major renewal of the Barbican Centre. That's the Chamberlain, Powell and Bond design brutalist arts complex right next door to where the Centre for Music was due to be built. To make this happen, the city is going to host an international competition later this year. The competition will focus on the Grade 2 listed Barbican Centre, but it will also focus on the plot where the Centre for Music was due to be built. That's currently occupied by the Museum of London that's due to relocate somewhere else. It's a Powell and Moyer designed landmark building, and so far the City of London Corporation hasn't said whether this building will stay or go in any future plans. Lucy, what's this all about? Should we be celebrating the fact the Centre for Music is not going to be built? Um, well, I wasn't quite sure who it was for in the first place or, or why it was needed, um, especially because it's it's so close to another really Instagram famous concert hall. I suppose it's one of those sort of large glitzy vanity projects that comes along every few years and isn't actually designed to to actually be made, but rather to sort of appear in some nice flashy renders to impress everybody. If you're a private donor that wants to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on something, then maybe a cultural centre is one of the better things to do it with. I hear you on that. I think, is it actually possible to improve the Barbican Centre? Because I think a lot of our listeners, possibly who are architects or aspiring architects, are going to have strong opinions about the Barbican Centre. A lot of them probably think that it's perfect and are quite edgy about this idea of some kind of major phased renewal. What do you what do you think about that, Lucy? I think they can definitely make the beer cheaper. That's one thing. Yep, I second that. And the wine. I think good wine, but 
better price. I mean, one of the one of the things that makes the Barbican appealing is its quirks and its weirdness, and and there's a sort of very limited amount you can do without beginning to smooth that over, really. And I think it, it's certainly uh, going to play out in the press because um, the Residents Association is, for example, notoriously. Uh, quite possessive of, of the buildings as well so um it's, it's one that we'll certainly be reading about and discussing again uh on the London in the future but also this idea of a competition now pretty much every architect i know i imagine that they would want to be the one who gets to enhance the barbican center i mean they're going to be out there dueling in the streets of clerkenwell i mean um what do you is, is this going to be a kind of a moment in uh, london architecture you'd have to be very brave i think to actually pull this off and and sort of alter the barbican in any way so i guess it will it'll just we'll have to wait and see who will step forward and um i guess i guess the question is how much of that money that was originally for the Centre for Music is going to go to the Barbican? Because that was £288 million. It's not, it's not all going to the Barbican, surely. Well, that, that is a very interesting question because um, as it was reported in this article in the AJ, it was saying that the City of London Corporation itself was pledging about £6.8 towards the project. And because it's a 14-storey uh, project, there's a concert hall with some other stuff on top. That other stuff happens to be offices and sort of commercial things. Um, so, yeah, uh, a lot of that £288 million, uh, would have been coming from from other places so hopefully that doesn't just leave 6.8 million uh to sort out the the, the barbican center itself because what what's that going to end up being i mean I, maybe that's enough money to sort of subsidize the beer we could we could just end it there okay so that's we're going to team up and do a competition entry uh which is the, the subsidized beer option we'll win the public poll for sure um, but that does also sort of raise a question about the the old Museum of London site. Um, and it is an extraordinary building. It's designed by Powell and Moyer architects who are claimed architects of their time. Um, it's got this amazing courtyard. It's got a big old office block on top of it. Yeah, what, what could happen to something like that? And especially when we know that retrofitting and extending the life of buildings is so much better for the environment than demolishing them, which the Sense for Music project would have done. Using it for anything is better than de demolishing it, like even turning it into the new big top shop or something like that. But um, It's got to go somewhere. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll be excited to see what they do with it, as long as, you know, it's not sort of luxury flats like the everything else. <laughs> Absolutely. And it neatly brings us on to our next stop, uh, this is all to do with a story which started on Twitter and ended up in, as an article in the Architects' Journal. Uh, it was a tweet by Walthamstow Labour MP Stella Creasy uh, criticising Howarth Tompkins' architects for designing what she described as a socially callous poor door. Now, a poor door is an entrance to affordable housing within a new development, and it's typically paired with a much grander entrance somewhere elsewhere to the more expensive private homes. Now, Howard Tompkins Architects responded in an article in the Architects Journal explaining that this development, which he had proposed for actually the local council, uh, did not in fact have uh, a poor door. It actually just had one door, one shared door for everybody, which went to a lobby, but in that lobby, there was a lift and stairwell, a lift core, which went up to the private, more expensive dwellings, and then a separate lift and lift core stairwell, which went to the affordable dwellings. So no poor door, but possibly a poor core. Uh, 
Now, the architect and its client, the council, said this was necessary to de-risk the development to make sure that more money could be made from those private homes to subsidise the affordable homes and the other bits of the development. But it also said that it was fairer on whoever would end up operating those affordable homes. That's like a housing association because they, they then wouldn't have to pay the bills on the lift and the lights and so on in uh, the other half of the building where the richer people live. Um, Lucy, what do you think about this? Why are poor doors such a massive issue that ignites so much tensions when it comes to discussions about affordable housing delivery right now? Yeah, people people used to be, you know, proud of, of building and designing affordable housing that was pleasant to live in and good to look at. But this poor doors thing sort of uh, suggests that it's being hidden away behind the real housing for for wealthier people. Um, and it's maybe it's a bit of a distraction, but it's it's more of a symptom of a wider problem about the problems with housing in London. I mean, the, the that separating the affordable and market rate housing is is somehow meant to increase the value of the latter is pretty wild though it certainly um it opens up a lot of questions about for example whether or not housing like this affordable housing and obviously that is a disputed term uh should be delivered through for example direct taxation uh maybe it should be through government funding or are we going to continue to rely on this kind of you you know, dystopian or utopian, as you see it fit, uh, model of getting the private sector to deliver it as a kind of afterthought. It's particularly sort of tense in this example, because this is actually a scheme brought forward by the council itself. So the council's initiated this one. Uh, and then the fact that the local MP has piled in on it kind of um, kind of unravels the sort of multiple complexities of the fact that this is a pretty undesirable outcome for everybody. But then again, the architect has, has got its poor core. I mean, what about that? Is the poor core the solution that you just, you, know, you have the same door, everyone's got the same door, but then that's your lift, this is my lift. Um, we don't have to stand next to each other in the lift. I mean, is, is that actually a, a good way of solving this or what? It's not really that it matters a great deal in and of itself. I think it's more that it's a, it's a neat little symbol of um, the Dickensian levels of inequality in our, in our city. Okay, so so if I were to just like throw my mind back and think of like Walthamstow or any other council 40 or 50 years ago, um, they would just build council housing, right? And there was no poor door. There was one door for everybody, right? Uh, and that, that was the dominant mode of housing delivery for decades. You know, there were more of that was built than other housing types, right? Um, and now we kind of found ourselves in this, this like, I, I think you can fairly describe it as like a quagmire where we're like splitting hairs, over the kind of nuances of a poor door or a poor call. And we actually think what we need to do is just like readjust our priorities and just focus on putting money into delivering super high quality public housing, which is completely indistinguishable from all other high quality housing, which is what everybody should live, live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there have been examples recently where um, not this particular development, but where sort of green spaces and playing areas for kids were separated by different tenures, which... I think is, is has quite a significant impact on the quality of life you'd have living there. I mean, these things should be for for everybody. I think that's that's what it comes down to. Whether whether the lift's slightly nicer or the the doorway has some there's some like plush couches in the lobby because it's a separate entrance area. I think is is neither here nor there really. But um, when it comes to to other amenities, I think I think that. It's when it becomes a real issue. 
Next up, this is a really big story, which actually wasn't very widely covered, but it was picked up by The Guardian. And this is all to do with a new report by the Church of England, which says that tackling the housing crisis is a national imperative. And it says that it's going to make the delivery of affordable housing a central part of its ministry. And that means creating a new bishop for housing who will sit in the House of Lords. And they're doing this because they say... They say there's 8 million people in England who live in overcrowded, unaffordable or unsuitable homes. And what they're going to do about it is they're going to make widespread, generous and responsible use of the church's land. And that's about 80,000 hectares of land. It's an enormous amount of land. But as well as doing this, they're also calling on the government to create a 20-year strategy to provide the truly affordable housing that this country really needs, to effectively solve the housing crisis once for once and for all. And crucially, that 20-year time frame is way outside a normal political cycle, right? Of 5 years. So this is saying take the politics out of housing and just fix this thing because it's urgent. Lucy, what, what's this all about? Because it's a bit of a role reversal. You know, we're used, to, we're used to the church being the one with hopeful words and prayers and the politicians are meant to be practical. But here's the church being practical and the politicians just sort of saying stuff and hoping it'll fix the problem. Yeah, it's, it's a bit weird. It's, it's like going back in time several hundred years. Why has the church got all this land still? Why not have the church step in if it's got all this spare land? It's potentially quite a big deal for architects as well because um, probably if you think about the way architects operate, they really like a good client you know they really it's, it's about who you work with then you get to you know make something really special and you think who couldn't be a better client than someone like church of england which has got this like epic long-term view and all of these like very grand social ambitions so i mean could this actually be could it be quite a big moment i mean you could imagine like with them really going for it and all this really beautifully designed public housing kind of epic moment I mean, I think the architecture would have to be really good for there to be any sort of religious conversion when you see it. But if you could call the, the church's view one thing, it would be long term. Um, but there are a lot of archaic hoops to jump through, obviously. So so there was um, there's the issue of being legally obliged to accept the highest offer on the property because it's funding whatever salaries of, of clergymen. Um, but yeah. I think I think there'll be sort of decades of of sort of digging through all the all the you know red tape that comes with working with the church first but once we're past that yeah so that's going to be a lot of future articles in the AJ with articles uh, architects discussing uh, uh the the intricate details of ecclesiastical business um yeah, it's certainly interesting because in the report they do talk a lot about like the church needing to be able to sell land without it being sold for the highest price, but rather for social value. But that kind of a bit concerning because it suggests that the the game plan here is just to sell off parcels of land to developers, and we already know that that system of doing things doesn't always <laughs> deliver the best end results. And an organisation with eighty one thousand hectares of land, you think they'd be the ones borrowing it uh, and building it themselves and seeing the thing through to completion? So yeah, that is that is a bit concerning. I mean, if you think about those, like the bigger landscape of housing in the United Kingdom, I mean, it's obviously it's probably a bit of a of an oversimplification, but typically you think of um, you know, parishioners who go into the Church of England in rural areas who own their home, and these are areas which are typically opposed to new homes. I mean, could this be a kind of like a, a, a total re, re, reappraisal of the whole kind of British sensibility around home owning? Do you think those people will accept maybe some, some threat to the value of their homes? Best not get too hopeful at the moment, because this is about um, disposing of church land rather than 
building anything yet. Um, but you know, I don't think they've got anything to worry about. You can, uh, you can, you know, you can have there are lots of converted churches and with graveyards in the gardens, and you're still allowed to access the graveyards. I think that's one of the conditions. So, if that's a concern. They need to worry. I mean, it certainly you could say it does sound like a bit of a post-rationalisation of a trend that was already happening. When you think of, for example, the amazing work that people like Matthew Lloyd's architects have done um, at St. Mary of Eton Church in Hackney Wick, for example. Um, yeah, there, there is a bit of a trend because, um, frankly, there are lots of amazing church buildings all over the country, but they're all tending to be in not the great state of repair. Uh, that puts the congregation in a situation where they need to to make some money and one clever way of doing this is to to develop some housing um and then you get a ready-made congregation at the same time some people who appreciate being next to the church they don't want the church to close and become uh, a mothballed relic and ruin on their doorstep uh this brings us on to another big story which broke in the sunday times and then was picked up by the architects journal this is to do with the Boris roundabout. This Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has asked his officials to look into the feasibility of creating a giant roundabout underneath the Isle of Man. It will connect four road tunnels. That doesn't sound terrible enough. These four road tunnels will connect Scotland, Northern Ireland, Liverpool and another place on the west coast of England near Liverpool that not many people have heard of. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, weird project. Um, is this just a, an epic distraction or is this something that we might actually have to put up with and uh, drive through? Um, no, I don't think this will ever be built, but it's certainly very funny to think about. Um, it's, 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 I guess it's busy work. I mean, yeah, but um, I, mean, I mean, the Isle of Man as a tiny little traffic island is quite a funny image, but yeah, there's no way this is being built. Well, yeah, this is this is the sort of classic uh, classic diversion. So, having originally wanted to build um, a big bridge or a big tunnel between um, Larne and Stranraer, um, which is Northern Ireland and Scotland, uh, they found uh, the Beaufort's Dyke, uh, which somebody somebody very cleverly uh, after the Second World War put 1.5 million tons of munitions in it. So, effectively, you can't you can't put the the thing in a straight line. So, you've got to put it as, as a roundabout underneath the Isle of Man uh, instead. But I think it sort of raises that point about these things sort of being great distractions. So you know, is, is the prime minister's intention here to actually build something or is it simply to um, to sort of change public opinion or to sort of grab a few headlines? Does Boris Johnson need a Millennium Dome for his legacy? Maybe. We'll wait and see. If it's, if it's a roundabout under the Isle of Man, I'd be very surprised. And... Uh... <laughs> If he builds it, I will walk the entire length and put the video on YouTube. Do you think this is this is the last of his grand projects, or do you think there could be some more? I think this is just like what we were talking about earlier about you know the the <laughs> the big concert hall. It's it's a nice idea. It's a distraction. So I, I would say that building stuff is good. I like architecture. I like cool things. But there's something very curious about Boris Johnson. He has a real habit of proposing quite grand things to be built, like uh, the Garden Bridge, for example, or the cable car or the Orbit Tower on the Olympic Park. Some of these things have been built. Some of them haven't been built. But this is quite an unusual thing in a way. I mean, there are places in the world where the leaders are associated with kind of epic architectural statements of their power and influence. But there's something quite particular uh, with our current uh, prime minister. I mean, what does this say? Why, why, why does he keep going for this? And what does it, what does it mean for us? Maybe he thinks that we're all very easily distracted. That could be it. Um, or, 
I don't know, maybe maybe he's um, gotten used to the idea that he doesn't actually have to follow through on these these huge spectacular things, which um, sound very, very fancy, but um, useless and expensive. Or, I don't know, perhaps it could say something about the UK's veneration for star architects and, and how brilliant they are and how we like them to do huge, spectacular projects. A lot of our problems in society could be solved by building some more things, for example, building more housing. So it kind of begs the question of um, where are the priorities here? It's some of the things like what's called the Boris bike or the Boris bus. I, mean, I think having a, a cycle, that's a great, a horrible cycle is a great thing. Um, making buses nicer is definitely a thing that we want to do. Whether or not the Boris bus achieves that is another question. But the uh, you know, broadly speaking, if we've got uh, a leader who's into these ground projects, who you, know, you could say is a frustrated architect, um, the big question is like where are the where are the priorities? Because um, uh, as we've been as we kind of mentioned several throughout the entire theme of this program, housing is the big issue of the day. Where's his Where's his manifesto for an epic housing project? Not his own private house, I hope. Yeah, yeah, housing is definitely an issue, um, and maybe all of that ambition could go into housing. Um, I feel like. M- we need to drive less as well. I think that's that's probably an issue. And and building more roads, although helps some people, maybe isn't the priority. Lucy, thank you for coming on the Lundown. It's been fantastic. I hope you could join us again soon to discuss and review the big architecture stories in London of the week. But where can listeners uh, follow a bit more of what you're doing, uh, catch up with the stories you're writing? Um, what's the best place for them to go? Well, Merlin, let me let me tell you about um, the Financial Times. Um, so I, I work on the house and home section. So we talk about architecture, design, interiors, etc. And um, you can buy it in any good news agent. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a new show from Open City, exploring the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. You can tweet at the show using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N, or at Open City London. We want to hear what you think, what you want us to be discussing in the show next week. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London more open, accessible and equitable. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.